Hey there, deviants. It's been a hot minute, but welcome back to Dark and Devious, and welcome back to this very special episode. Yes, welcome back, everybody. It is 2023. Uh, it's been far too long since we've been in your ears, uh, but we are super happy to be back. And I'm glad that Patrick mentioned at the top there that this is a very special episode, not only because we're starting out a new year. I mean, we are edging closer to, has it been two years of the podcast? It will be this month. I can't. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And I forgot that it's February now. Yeah. Sorry. Bye, um, January. Yeah. Sorry, everyone. We were uh, took a little hiatus for the month of January. Um, I had to do some traveling for some family issues going on. It was the holiday season. Um, we had Chris the, is living in the winter blues. You know, Yeah. Chris is up in Minnesota where it's just dark <laughs> and cold all the time. Um, but we are back. Yes, and the special thing about today's episode is this is the very first time in Dark and Devious podcast history we are doing a two-part episode. Yes, uh, so Chris, you are bringing us a two-parter. Uh, one first part this week, the second part next week, which I'm super excited about because that means not only is it, you know, a special you know, moment in dark and devious history, but also this has to be a pretty big case. And I don't want to talk about it yet because we have some other things to talk about, but mm -hmm. I cannot wait to hear it. Yes, this is this is a, a case that has lots of complexity to it. And there's kind of like two whole like circles of things to talk about. So we're going to give equal time to both both elements. So okay. I think it's only fair. Yeah, very cool. Um, well, during our um, month break, um, while you were busy writing and researching this, I um, just absorbed so much true crime <laughs> content. <laughs> um, so listeners, don't you worry about 2023. We will not take a break like that again this year, hopefully. Because um, I know both Chris and myself have a lot of resources to and a lot of cases to go back to when we is our turn to write and research our episodes um so yeah cheers to what will be year two of dark and devious here in the year 2023 you know it's just it, it seems so weird how much time has gone by since we started Mm -hmm. I, mean, I remember our first recording was in your old apartment in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. And then we were just so excited. I remember I wanted to like wait and have a couple of episodes built up. And you're like, no, let's publish it now. <laughs> and I was like, but we don't know what we're doing yet. <laughs> and But we did it and it turned out great. And look where we are. Yeah. 
Which, mm-hmm. speaking of look where we are, my husband and I went to a recording of a podcast that he listens to called Wizard and the Bruiser. We went to oh no a, way a venue called Emos here in Austin, and we went to dinner before. And lo and behold, what do I hear? Two true true crime podcast aficionados talking about morbid and then dark and devious. So to our um, true crime listeners here in Austin, I didn't get your name. I'm sorry. But hi. Thank you for <laughs> um, following and listening. And I hope you guys enjoyed the Wizard and the Bruiser show. Oh my gosh, I love that so much. I mean, I feel like that's when you've really made it is when you can go to a public place and overhear somebody talking about how much they love your show. Well, hopefully they love it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If they're Um, listening, I hope they're they're enjoying it. To be fair, Um, they're raving about Morbid, which I mean, again, I should just be a commercial for Morbid. Yeah, you Um, are. I, I mean, I think uh, you should you should maybe get at least a nickel for every time you mention it. <laughs> which you got me um, Elena's book for Christmas, which yes. I have I have not started yet because, to be fair to my husband, he reminded me that he's gotten me several books that I have not started, and <laughs> and um, I feel like I should at least read one of those <laughs> before reading something else that someone else got me. Fair, fair. Um, but I mean, yes, it will I'm still be there. It's on your bookshelf. It's there yeah. whenever. That's a great thing. That uh, That's why I never deprive myself of buying a book. Yes. Because even if I don't read it right away, it'll be there when I do have time to read it. Exactly. Um. But yes. So anyways, here we are. Yes. Anything you would like to share, Chris? It's been a while. I know. Um. Very exciting news. My partner just recently moved in with me so we're we're just like this cute little happy family uh it's just the two of us and his little dog and uh, I'm loving that that's exciting I remember when I first moved in with my loving husband um it is exciting it's a it's a big step in your relationship Mm -hmm. and it's funny because we we almost look at it as not as big of a deal because we lived together for a short time early on in our relationship when he was between apartments Uh like while he was looking for a new place uh, I think we lived together for maybe like two months yeah and it's like we got along great and everything um so I was happy with that and uh the dog is even warming up to me a little bit Mm -hmm. she still gets a little anxious around me but I think it's just because I'm not her person. That's... You know, maybe, you know, I, I'd give her lots of treats and and try and earn her trust and her affection that way. But, uh, you know, I think she's always just going to be a little bit anxious around me, especially because, like, I'm so much taller and she's <laughs> this she's such a little dog. Yeah, I, mean, I could probably. Yeah. Pick and her up in one arm a, if she would like, let me. Smaller person too, so she's used to smaller people, and you are yeah. quite tall. <laughs> <laughs> so I get it. I I try not to make any sudden movements around her. <laughs> yeah, um, um, but I do love having a dog around. I grew up with dogs, so right. It's it's a a good feeling to have a little furry companion around the house. Mm-hmm. Yes, we um. 
I brought my loving cat, Winnie, to the family when we moved in. And husband brought our beautiful husky, Yoshi, which um, to this day, Yoshi does prefer my husband over me, but um, he loves me. He loves our walks together and he greets me when I come home. That's um, good. But if there was a house fire and if the dog had a choice who he could save, I'm pretty sure I know who he would save. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things. It's like you just you just can't compete with like the person who's loved them from the very start. Right. It's like they they know that mm. such is life. Yeah, such is life. But um yeah, I mean gosh, so much time has gone by. I I I have missed doing this. So we need to get back into it again. Yes, I've missed it a lot. Um and hopefully our listeners have missed us. Um it is a lot of work, but it's very rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um very rewarding work. So the next thing for us is listeners, if you have a connection with a network, <laughs> plug us in so we yeah, can start if, getting I mean, paid. if we could just do this full time, I would, as much as I would miss all my coworkers at my other jobs, it would be great to devote full time. I know. To, I to honestly, I love my work so much. Mm-hmm. Um. I love my coworkers. I love working with high schoolers. But if I could just get paid to research, write, and record a couple times a week, I would, I'd be set. Like, that would sign be awesome. me up. Well, until then, this is how it is. Yes. And we'll I'm not talk- complaining. <laughs> uh, well, I certainly, I cannot think of anything else major that i needed to touch on you did you already talk about what you had been binging oh no i have not uh but just something for our netflix subscribers out there uh i've been watching the korean horror series somebody on netflix and it is a a series where the serial killer is using dating apps to find victims and the dating app is called somebody. So think of it like Tinder. It's the same exact thing. Like you swipe left, you swipe right. And when he swipes right and matches with someone, um, they chat, he swoons them and they agree to meet up and then he kills them. So Wow. I feel, didn't I just hear about a real life killer who was using dating apps? Like I'm, someone who has escaped. I thought I heard something in the news about this that just made me think of. I don't know. Hmm. I, I mean, I'm no doubt it has happened. Oh, um, yeah. Which is. Be careful on those dating apps, folks. Yeah. I may have met my husband on it, but I also may have gone on a date with a serial killer and I just happened to get away. I don't know. Um, So be careful. But yeah, so that's my recommendation for this week. If you enjoy horror or crime type TV, um, and especially if you like Korean culture, um, as I do, um, check out Somebody on Netflix. Very cool. That, That does sound... That does sound up my alley. So I might have to check that one out. Yeah, I can't think of anything that I've been watching lately. I don't I'm such a sporadic TV watcher and 
I feel like I've always got so much other stuff going on that I don't really have time to sit down and explore what's new on mm-hmm. on the the streaming services and whatnot. I mean, gosh, I can barely get to the theater ever. I I hadn't gone to movies in forever, and I just recently, with a couple of my friends, I I, I saw uh, well, I saw Wakanda Forever back in November which was like the first movie I'd seen in forever at the theater. And then we saw the new um, Avatar movie mm-hmm. too. And that was fun. I mean, it's it's not like it's some um, genius work of filmmaking. It's kind of, this is a, a pretty, pretty predictable storyline and you kind of know what's going to happen before it happens almost, but it was it's very fun visually to see right and that was uh, the know, same with the first one too yeah it was just all the visuals what a, a, people call it like what pocahontas or or um that's exactly what my pocahontas husband, in space <laughs> that's exactly what my husband says avatar is it's just pocahontas with blue people yeah which yeah so, it, makes, it makes sense which um I, by I, the it, way if our listeners have not listened to it back in year one of the podcast for Thanksgiving. I covered the true story of Pocahontas. <laughs> so go back and find that if you want to hear what really happened. Anything else you wanted to mention before we get down into the uh, depths of today's story? Not that I can think of. Um, and I think with it being so long, we should just get into it. Um, so I am it. ready and excited for whatever this part one of this huge story is going to be. All right, so deep in the heart of the Florida Panhandle, near the town of Mariana, lies a secret. An open secret that sat out in the open for nearly a century before it finally saw the light of day. At the dawn of the 20th century, Jackson County, Florida, was delighted to welcome the Florida State Reform School. It was a point of pride for the community and a major source for reliable, well-paying jobs and a cheap source of labor for the agricultural business that dominated the area. But while it may have been a boon for Mariana and Jackson County, the cost in human life and suffering was steep. The Florida State Reform School went through several transformations and many investigations, but is probably best known as the Dozier School for Boys, renamed to honor an early administrator of the school. The Dozier School, during its 111 years of service, earned a reputation for brutality and mishandling the boys who passed through its gates. Some were never seen or heard from again. After the facility closed in 2011, survivors who had been living with the memories of abuse and mistreatment were finally being listened to seriously, and a search began in earnest for answers of what happened to those that never had a chance to come home. Today, we'll cover the search for answers and justice for the lost boys of the Dozier School with the main source being Aaron Kemmerell's book, We Carry Their Bones. Ooh, this sounds familiar. I feel like I've heard of this, but I don't know 
much about it unless like maybe while you're telling the story, something will spark mm-hmm. my memory. But I mean, it could also be I've read and heard stories about all types of reform schools where kids just went missing. Right. I know. I feel like this is is not an uncommon story. Um, I mean, I know and I, th- I think about what I've heard in the news in the last couple of years. Um, I know Canada has been yes. going through a big thing where um, where First Nationers, which is what Canada calls Native Americans, um, the First Nationers uh, for decades, the, the children were sent to these like Catholic reform schools on basic, like basically having their culture stripped away from them. Yep. And yep. while these like like thousands of children were sent to these schools and so many of them never came back home alive mm-hmm. and and just now they're finding these mass graves uh, like unmarked graves where children were were buried and now they're they're kind of dealing with the reconciliation of that um and kind of confronting their past about the the mistreatment of those children and the the like purposeful destruction of that culture right um we kind of did a a sim well we we did do the same thing here in the united states too um so (laughs) there's no no doubting that um but that whole system uh also worked for poor and uh uh people of color and just kind of anybody who didn't uh, seem to have the same quote unquote like value to society mm-hmm. um, that this is this isn't unusual. This just happens to be uh, a very large case of this. Uh, in fact, this school for a time was one of the largest in the entire country uh, of this kind of facility. So there's a lot of tales to be told about this place. I'm sure. Uh, so first off, we should introduce Aaron Kemmerell, uh, so you know kind of where the point of view is coming from. So Aaron is an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of South Florida and the executive director of the Florida Institute of Forensic Anthropology and Applied Science um, at that same university. That's like such a mouthful. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but she is very well uh, um, qualified to do this kind of work. Some of her resume, she has also worked in uh, war zones where, where like genocides happen. So she, she had gone to like Kosovo and dealt with some of, with like mass graves and stuff there. Hmm. Uh, So she's, she's got a lot of experience under her belt when it comes to this type of research. Yeah. This type of research. So Um, As an anthropologist, she is uniquely qualified and obligated to follow the standards and practices of her field of study. It is her job to get all the facts and present them openly and honestly. Truth is her goal, even if it might be painful to some. From start to finish, she stayed with the project and fought for the families of of these lost children to, to get closure on what happened to their loved ones. She dedicated years of her life to the project, and as you'll see, it was worth it to bring a measure of closure for these families. So one of the great things about having her being the one narrating this this story in this book 
is that um, it's not like she has a personal stake in the sense like it's not like her loved ones are the ones involved that she's kind of this outside um, voice who like is all about what do like what does the evidence tell me okay like, what are the things I can tell you for sure based on what we found mm-hmm. you know, uh, one of the things I really appreciate is that she doesn't make conjectures that she can't back up with evidence um, gotcha. so I think that makes this a really great reliable resource mm-hmm. so there's our little introduction to the the storyteller in this situation so on January 1st 1900 the Florida State Reform School opened and the intention from the start was for it to be just that a school and not a prison but a prison is what it eventually became Initially, both girls and boys were sent there, but it did not take more than a couple of years for the the flow of girls to stop because of inappropriate behavior by administrators. Gross. Yeah, very gross. The children sent to to the school were meant to be convicted of a crime, though the definition of crime was used broadly when it came to sending a kid to the facility. Children could be sent to the school for such vague offenses as truancy, incorrigibility, and uh, children who didn't have a home or had gone off on their own uh, could be forcibly placed in the school by a judge merely for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. There's even uh, instances of of, uh, children who were orphans who ended up getting placed in the school because they like they just like didn't get along at the orphanage or like yeah. they were trying to get away from the orphanage because of poor conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, even kids who had literally done nothing wrong could be sent to this school just because uh, they it's like, oh, you're just uh, we don't know what to do with you. So we'll send you there. Sounds like there's a lot of classism. And oh yeah, like there, there's no the way that uh, that you know if Johnny Rich Kid you know stole the car, he's not being sent to this school. Like he's probably getting off with a slap on the wrist. I bet. I don't I mean, think that they would be sending them here. Yeah. So the more children that got sent to the school the more cheap labor there would be available for local industries to take advantage of. Florida in the post-Reconstruction era needed a labor force to make up for the loss of slaves at the end of the Civil War. Thus, the era of convict leasing was born, and children sent to the reform school were not immune from this fate. Oftentimes, men and boys who were leased out to plantations and other industries were worked to death or kept in conditions that fostered disease. Children of all races and ages were sent to the school, but this being the Deep South in a period of segregation, white children and children of color were housed separately, and the treatment of the children of different races was evident. Even though record er, even through record keeping. Uh, Boys of color were far less likely to get proper documentation, such as death certificates. And children did die at the facility. 
some from natural causes and others under suspicious circumstances. A flu pandemic in 1918 and 1932 took the lives of several children, and there are even documented cases of fellow children committing murder on the campus. Wow. But the first major cause of death uh, caused by negligence comes from the early days of the school and left multiple boys dead. So yeah, it's really weird to think of a school having a cemetery. Like, it it does not uh, seem to be like, these two things should not go hand in hand. Right. It's like one and, of these things is not like the other. And um, the fact that so many children died there over the years makes you kind of question, like, what kind of conditions are these children being held under? Are they getting proper medical care when things like illnesses come up? Um I'm and sure then, that they weren't like they probably weren't getting proper medical care, proper nutrition, um, warm, cozy beds when weather was poor, like because from what it sounds like, these children were viewed as lower and less valuable citizens of society if mm-hmm. they're even considered citizens. Yeah. Right? And it, it's really I, one one thing I thought was very interesting was that okay, slavery is done away with, with the Civil War, but, oh, we still need, we still need uh, cheap labor to produce the things that we want to produce. You know, like, who's going to harvest the fields? It's like, what? Are we going to actually pay people a living wage to do the hard work? No, we're going to get, we're just going to find a new class of people to exploit. and. Um, that is why that there are so many people that get handed down long prison sentences and get assigned to backbreaking labor for very small offenses. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it is. It's just a new class to exploit. And yeah. it's despicable because mm-hmm. it's like these. It's like that's not how the economy should work. No. So the evening of November 18th, 1914 was a cold one by Florida standards and the dormitories of the reform school were packed with boys. uh, Some as young as five years old. Like, can you imagine a five-year-old being taken from their family because they, you know, they were out in the, in the community on their own or they you know stole food or something or the color of their skin yeah i mean they would find any reason to throw these children in an institution because money they yep. they if there's a way to make a buck off of them they'll exploit it yep that night mr og martson a longtime staff member who was entrusted with the care of the children awoke to a fire in one of the dormitories where nearly a hundred boys were housed. Martson sprung into action. He found the kitchen on the first floor of the building engulfed in flames, and the flames were spreading fast along the oil-soaked wood of the freshly painted walls and staircase. 
He went from room to room, alerting the sleeping children of the danger. But not all of them could be so easily warned. On the third floor of the dormitory, some boys were chained up in isolation cells that required keys. Keys that Martson would have to go searching for. Several of the men who lived on campus, including the school's superintendent, William H. Bell, were not present when the fire broke out, leaving a scant few adults to deal with the supervision of the boys and the fire situation. The flames quickly spread up the central staircase, blocking the main exit for the boys trying to evacuate. At the ends of the hall, there were recently installed doors and fire escapes, but the doors were locked shut with chains, which kind of makes me think, which makes me think of like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, where all of the exits were chained shut so that people wouldn't take breaks. This is insane. I could not imagine like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory or the situation where the building that you're in is burning down and there's literally no way out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You are chained shut in there. And so this building is three stories tall. And what I, what is really interesting is that they were actually required by law just recently, like the year before to add these fire escapes. Uh Uh-huh. But what good are the fire escapes if you can't get to them in a fire? It's it's ridiculous. So it took every ounce of strength they had. But with the help of some of the older boys, they were able to break down the doors and, and get to the fire escapes. Barefoot and choking on smoke, the boys made their way into the cold night air. While many were able to get free through the, the busted down fire escape doors the boys chained up on the third floor could only be accessed via the central staircase which was quickly becoming an an inferno and those are the ones that are in solitary confinement right right they're the ones who are are uh in isolation cells you need to get the the keys to unlock the cells in the first place which if the keys are on the first floor and you're trying to get to the third floor and the only way to get up there is on fire, there's not a lot of hope for you. And it's like you are basically sentencing them to an oven. Mm -hmm. Because there's no way, you know, there's, you know that those windows are not going to be an escape route because they're probably barred. Right. So they are trapped up there so unfortunately the recently added fire escapes did not reach the third floor furthermore the keys that martson had gone in search of were nowhere to be found on campus they were with superintendent bell who had left earlier that evening and what it says in the book that uh, apparently superintendent bell was just like going out for a night on the town right like so he was just like on a pleasure bend you know that evening Mm -hmm. meanwhile like he had the only set of keys that would would have even given a chance for these kids who were locked up to survive so firefighters arrived on the scene in a horse-drawn model a ford with a booster pump 
but their efforts were no match for the blaze that had overtaken much of the building. Because remember, this is 1914. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, fire departments only have so many, uh, you know, kind of tools in their toolkit. Uh, the fact that they had a like a water pump at all is seems pretty advanced for the yeah, time. I'm surprised. Um, but it's not like they had a fire hydrant that they could have hooked up a big hose to and douse the building with yeah or like a big water tank that they could have brought it's like yeah there's it's it's pretty limited and when that that building especially when the fire has been accelerated by oily paint and Mm -hmm. and and like rags and stuff like that um it there's just too much fuel for that fire to be put under control the bystanders could only watch helplessly as they heard the cries of those still trapped calling for help. The floors gave way and those that remained inside met their end in a tragic fiery collapse. The wreckage smoldered for days and whatever still remained was eventually torn down. The reported death toll for the the disaster was six children and two adult staff members though there were conflicting reports to the exact number of casualties. The staff members, Charles Evans and Bennett Evans, were father and son, both looking for each other in the midst of the calamity and ultimately were not able to escape in time. It was a horrible catastrophe and there were plenty of dangers that were overlooked that made the dormitory an accident waiting to happen. Uh, And... I can't remember if I added this later, but um, there may have been as many as like eight or nine kids who were not accounted for after that. Yeah, I was going to say six was a surprisingly low number, Mm -hmm. given that, you know, kids were literally chained up and there were bars on the windows. Yeah. Like, I my guess is that there were more. Right. And and I think it would probably be in the school's best interest to have as low of a reported casualty number as possible. I agree. So rumors and theories as to how the fire started spread quickly. Angry parents seeking to get their children back had threatened the school, though burning down a dormitory full of children did not seem a likely action from a disgruntled parent. So prior to this fire, like people had already expressed how angry they were at the school uh-huh. um, for the conditions that their children were being held under. Well, I'm good that the public was not like in support of the school. Well, the community sure seemed to be. Um, but the parents of the children, oh, okay, okay. you know, so the one, the parent, you know, I think a lot of times people think that, oh, these kids, they didn't have families that cared about them, but, and, and certainly that may be the case for some, mm-hmm. but I'll, there were certainly all, and also a number of these children who did have families who wanted them back and, um, were really upset with having their children taken from them. Okay. So although five days before the fire, a man from the nearby town of Laurel Hill named George Coldwell came to demand that his son be released. 
Uh, he was well aware of the school's reputation for convict labor, hiring the boys out to plantations, brickmakers, and naval companies. Uh, and he was also aware of the bogus charges that were used to put poor people into these institutions and exploit their labor because they didn't have the means to defend themselves. So yeah, just imagine this is a time period where I'd, it's not like you would even get a public defender probably at this point. Mm-hmm. It's probably yeah. like you answer for what you were accused of. And if you could defend yourself or if you could, if you had the means to defend yourself, great. But if you didn't, you were pretty much sunk. Right. So Coldwell um, was actually arrested in uh, on suspicion of arson you know, because he had threatened, you know, to burn the school to the ground because he was up, upset about his son being. I mean, in. yeah, that's a pretty, uh, pretty big target on your back. If you say, I'm going to burn yeah, this place and down never... and then the next week it burns down. Yeah, it certainly doesn't look good for you. But a grand jury exonerated him in light of evidence provided by witnesses and staff. Thankfully, after he was cleared of suspicion, he was allowed to bring his son home for good. Good. So there is a, a small happy ending there. Yeah, I like mean, one. Sucks that he was ending. wrongfully accused, but... Uh, now, what seemed more likely was an accident due to negligence further exacerbated by the lack of care administered by those in charge of the school. Kerosene lanterns lit the hallways. Dynamite used for removing tree stumps, uh, clearing land and breaking up the hard clay ground for brick making was stored under the stairwell. Right. And oily red. Oily rags that had been used to clean up after painting the stairwell were left carelessly in the kitchen near a broken stove that only stood on three legs. So the building was basically a tinderbox. And yeah. the fact that the fire had not occurred occurred sooner or been more deadly was the smallest of silver linings. Now, there was immediate outcry from the public which may seem surprising, especially since the young people who were sent there were oftentimes looked down on as throwaway children. Thankfully, there were some parents who cared for their incarcerated children and demanded the school's conditions be improved. In the first 13 years of operation, the school was investigated six times including one time in 1903 where it was discovered that children were being placed in leg irons. What's a leg iron? Um, I mean, it's, it's basically uh, think of like really heavy duty metal uh, placed around your ankles so that you can't move. Okay. I'm going to do a Google search. Yeah. You can um, keep going. I'll figure this was, this was something that was, common at the time for adult convicts and you can imagine in a, in a case of like an emergency like a fire you would not have a chance of of getting away if you were being held in a leg iron got you i see it now yeah you definitely are not moving fast yeah 
Um, but despite numerous complaints and investigations, it seemed that authorities were determined to keep the school open. And despite the tragedy, the community could not afford to lose the jobs and labor provided by the school. So the board of managers for the school did their best to divert blame from management. The board of managers released their report on the same day the coroner's report was made public. The president of the board was a man named William Milton, and his investigation was fraught with questionable con connections. First of all, Milton didn't disclose that his nephew, John Milton Jr., was an employee of the school and had served on the coroner's jury, which was a group of citizens who were assembled to help the coroner on his inquest. Mm -hmm. So he had an insider on the, the coroner's inquest. So John Milton Jr. was also a primary witness as he had been superintendent of the school until 1913 and held a lot of respect in the community. So here he's somebody who had been running the school before the fire happened, um, you know, held a lot of sway in the community, was very well respected. So if he's going to kind of sway things in one direction, you know which way he's going to right. go. Right, yep. And everyone who is who already has such high regard for him, they're going to be like, well, of course I would take his word for, uh, for it just because he's such an upstanding good mm -hmm. citizen. Right. So the report stated that the school had added the two fire escape doors in accordance with legislation passed in 1913 requiring the update. It was acknowledged that the doors were always locked, but the keys were always kept in the office on the first floor, and the staff had access to, to the keys. Except yeah. for when the superintendent takes them on their night out on the town. Yeah, a lot of good that did in an emergency. And if you need to reach somebody on the third floor, and you only have one way of getting to the third floor, and that way is on fire, they are, they're goners. It's, mm -hmm. it does not seem like an accurate, uh, uh, like safety plan. So I guess my question is, are the keys that open up the cells on the third floor, are they on like a ring, which you may or may not know this, are they on like a key ring that also would unlock the chains on the fire escape doors? Because why couldn't they go to the third floor from the outside? The The fire escapes didn't reach up to the third floor. Okay. Only, what good are the, these people? Right? I don't know if that was maybe like a loophole in the legislation, like it was minimum standards or something uh -huh. like that. But um, I guess when they put it in, they probably weren't expecting this situation. And of right. course, that's what ended up happening. Right. So also, according to this report, all of the boys filed out in a calm and orderly fashion and did not encounter smoke. They touted that they were uh, that there were no injuries, and those that died were all heroes trying to ensure that no one was left behind. 
Aside from one, quote, demented boy who re-entered the dormitory to retrieve a blanket. Um, Because that, maybe that was a very young child and that blanket was the only thing he had left from his family. Um, and he wanted it back. Or maybe that is a completely fabricated story. Those are my opinions. Yeah. And I mean, granted, too, in compared to what I'm used to, you know, living in Minnesota for what is a cold night, um, a cold night in Mariana, Florida, probably felt by comparison, like freezing, you know, so it was probably very cold by their Mm -hmm. standards. I mean, Florida gets cold. Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, really does. We've heard those stories about those uh, what lizards are falling out of the trees. Uh-huh. Because they they lose their blood flow and they don't die. They just yeah, like they just go into like a coma. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, it does get cold. And and I think that's really sad too that like they called him demented. Yeah. It's like truly. probably was just scared and cold and and didn't know any better right especially like what age was his kid yeah was it a like 14 year old that knew better or was it like a four-year-old yeah and of course it didn't say one way or the other this version of events certainly presented the fire in the best light possible but in addition to this investigation There was a separate one conducted by the Florida Legislative Committee that was independent of the coroner and the Board of Managers' findings. The Legislative Committee investigation found that there had never been any fire drills or preventative measures for safety. Furthermore, there were no guards or watchmen on duty, and key staff members, notably the superintendent, Mr. Bell, were not present on the campus when the fire broke out. The most damning testimony corroborated that the dormitory was locked up, including the fire escapes, and Superintendent Bell was the only one with keys to all the doors. Numerous papers across the state carried headlines that reflected the investigation, like cremation of inmates was due to negligence, said the Tampa Tribune. The Miami News called the fire hell on earth, and the Tampa Times simply stated Mariana fire was preventable. Hmm. In the wake of the investigation, Superintendent Bell was rightfully fired. But of course, like, do you think he faced any criminal uh, repercussions or like any kind of criminal investigation? No. He no. just lost his job and probably went on to go do something else. Probably at the same caliber too. Probably was yeah. not even like basic, essentially a slap on the wrist. Yep. The victims of the fire were buried on the campus in a place that became the school cemetery called Boot Hill. But when the search for those victims remains began 90 some years later it was uncertain how many bodies they would find six deaths were reported by milton's board of managers report seven deaths were reported in the state legislative report Uh, 10 deaths were reported by the coroner basically though 
Nine children were listed as missing in the wake of the fire. Uh, Clifford Jeffries, Earl Morris, Harry Wells, Joseph Weatherby, Waldo Drew, Walter Fisher, Louis Haffen, Clarence Parrott, and S. Barnett. Though it is claimed by the school's investigation that Earl Morris may have run away during the commotion of the fire, though his family never saw him again, which seems to point to him being a victim of the fire. Mm -hmm. What bodies that could be found were buried on Boot Hill, but since identification was no doubt difficult and perhaps a bit gruesome, permanent definitive resting places were not properly marked and their whereabouts were lost to history. The boys who lost their lives were doubly let down. Their lives were not adequately protected, and once they were lost, they were not properly memorialized. Hmm. In the decades following the fire, the school saw losses of life from waves of illness, like the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, but an era of brutal punishment was also ushered in, which saw beatings and sexual violence used as means to punish and torment the boys at the school. In 1915, three black boys died at the school. No cause of death was given. In all, like all within that year or like? Yeah, in one time. year, okay. three, three of them died and they didn't even bother to document the cause of death right in 1916 three more black boys died with no other information taken after um other than deceased so it was just like they died yeah like you don't need to know how like were they beaten were they worked so hard without being given like water or proper rest who knows? Like, that just really shows how they treated, like, if it had been a white child, they probably would have documented their the cause of death. But or at because... least looked into it. Like, yeah. maybe they didn't even look into it with these, mm -hmm. with these six black boys. Or maybe they knew and they weren't going to say what really happened. Mm-hmm. This pattern continued on like this for decades. In 1929, an 11-room concrete structure was built on the campus and deemed the White House. Inside the White House were two cells, one for whites and the other for boys of color. These cells were where severe punishments such as whippings and beatings were doled out for decades and where a number of survivors claimed their sexual assaults took place. The men who endured these horrible punishments became known as the White House Boys. And there will be more on them later in the episode. They'll be kind of a, a critical part to this whole, uh, whole storyline. Okay. So for decades after the fire, many boys attempted to escape. There was no fence around the facility until 1981 a fact that no doubt tempted boys that were tired of being beaten, overworked, and abused to run away. Uh -huh. Ledgers still exist that document the dozens of attempted escapees. Some even tried multiple times to get away, 
but each time they were always recaptured somewhere in the county. But sometimes worse. Whenever a boy wasn't accounted for at bed check, a search party was hastily assembled and the whole town was on the side of the administration. If an escapee was caught in town, any townsperson would relish the chance to capture a young delinquent. The overseers of the campus were known to carry pistols and shotguns. They would drive slowly down dirt roads with searchlights in their trucks in a tradition they called boy hunting. Ugh, just saying yeah, that, that sounds it, awful. Saying that makes my skin crawl. It does. It really invokes the like most dangerous game. Like you're literally hunting a human being, uh-huh. and whether you use those weapons or not uh doesn't seem to make a difference to those people right who are doing the hunting the punishment for making a run for it or even discussing such a plan was almost always an unpleasant trip to the white house where a beating would be administered and it it was sure to be extra brutal especially if the disciplinarian had been roused from sleep to find the missing boy some boys, however, were even less fortunate and were killed or died during their escape. And died is definitely in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. One such runaway named Thomas Curry ran away from the school and allegedly died of a wound to the forehead, skull crushed from unknown cause. So, like, how does that even happen? That's what was stated on, like, the death certificate. His skull was crushed uh, mm-hmm. and they just like found him like that. Um, Apparently. And it just makes me really question as to how hard they looked into it. I think a lot of the times when a kid who was trying to escape died in the, in the process, I think a lot of the times they just didn't ask questions. It's like, well, that's what you get for trying to run away. Like, yeah. if they just hadn't run away, it wouldn't have happened. Right. I was thinking uh, the same thing. And that there's just a lot of apathy for um, for these children, you know, if they did end up dead. Because they were expendable. Mm-hmm. Another runaway in 1960 named Robert Hewitt also died from gunshot wounds in the chest inflicted by person or persons unknown. So this is like, okay, he was literally gunned down. He was murdered and no one ever found out who did it, who pulled the trigger. Did they ever even try? Right. And it's like, I, I really sincerely doubt whether they put the same amount of effort behind finding an answer to this child's murder uh, that they would if it had been any other citizen in town. Right. And then there is the story of George Owen, a 14-year-old boy who escaped the school in December of 1940. His remains were later found under a house in the nearby town of Mariana. And I'm seeing that now at... he actually escaped uh, earlier than December. I think it was only reported mm. in December. Um, so 
he may have escaped the school as early as September of 1940. So George Owen never liked the dark very much, but what he did like was music. Anyone who knew George could tell you the young teenager was a country music fan and would whistle Gene Autry songs to give him courage in the dark. He also had a vagabond spirit like Huckleberry Finn and was known to wander off from his hometown of Auburndale without telling anyone he was leaving to go visit his grandfather, who was a fisherman on Gasparilla Island on Florida's west coast. He would return full of stories of adventure and fishing on the Gulf of Mexico. Hmm. The kid had guts and a wanderlust heart. In 1940, George set out on his greatest adventure yet. He was going to try to make it to Nashville to see if he could try his luck in a music career. But those dreams were dashed when he reached uh, Tavares, Florida. It is there that George was picked up and charged with auto theft for riding in a stolen car, which is absolutely nuts. You know, the kid is 14 years old, doesn't even know how to drive a car, and yet he still gets arrested. Right. Um, I really wish that there were more details in the book about the circumstances of his arrest, because if someone else had stolen the car the charge should not have been applied to the kid who was probably just hitchhiking, which was really common back then. Yeah. I want to know what happened to the person that was actually driving the car. Yeah. It just doesn't, it it seems very much a guilt by association kind Uh of charge. Yeah. And because he was on his own, he didn't have representation. Um, You know, his family wasn't there to vouch for him or to stick up for him at all. Uh, And, in this town, it's like, we don't know who you are. You're just some vagrant. Um, so we're. it's probably better to just get you off the street rather than to let you continue uh, going on to your destination. Mm-hmm. But rather than sending the boy back to his family, the judge saw an opportunity to ship another young soul off to the recently renamed Florida Industrial School for Boys. Um, And like I said, I'm sure he probably was not given proper counsel in this situation. And since that school had been renamed the Florida Industrial School for Boys, it really, um, I'm sure it sounded a lot better than it actually was. To me, it sounds like it's like a, like a technical training school. Mm -hmm, Exactly. See, even back then they knew the, the importance of branding. (laughs) So the name change made it sound far more innocuous, almost like a trade school where youth youths would be taught hard work and skills they could use in the real world when they were released. But the reality was that it was some it was the same convict labor mill that it had been for decades under a new name. I also wonder if some of the judges, like I'm sure a lot of the judges in the state of Florida had not been to the school. So when they're like, well, one of the options is we could send you to this industrial school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm wondering if even some maybe well-intentioned judges of the time uh, may have just been like, this will make you a better citizen. 
Right. Or maybe, and, honestly, probably even some parents mm, that maybe mm-hmm. have, you know, like a child that they were having issues with. Um, so they hear this industrial tr- school for boys that are like, oh, we'll send them there. He'll get, you know, s- some more discipline. Like, they, yeah. I'm sure it was advertised as like, you know, like, we'll give your kids discipline so they are more um, like... I don't know how to say this. More obedient, sound. more. Yeah, not, more I don't like know how behaved. to say without sounding gross, but like, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, um, it's going to sound gross no matter what. Yeah, but I'm sure it was advertised as like a place where kids go and become better. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and the fact that they're still calling it a school. Yeah. Made it sound like, well, this is actually a. Um, actually, a, um opportunity. Opportunity. Yeah. When George arrived at the school, he was able to send a letter to his family back home. He told them that he was fine and that he had arrived at the reform school. But then weeks went by with no word from him. Then his family heard that he had escaped from the school and had gotten within 15 miles of home, which is a tremendous task, especially because this is like hundreds of miles. Yeah. And... The fact that he managed to escape the school, managed to get past, like, any of the townspeople, because I'm sure there probably were not a lot of sympathetic folks in town. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would have basically had to just, like, run and keep running until he got out of the county. Right. And and that would not have been an easy thing to do. And hope that no one saw him on the yeah. way. Um. But he got picked up in the town of Bartow. So upon his recapture, George was able to send another letter, but it held an ominous message. It said, I got what was coming to me. And that was the last letter his family ever got from him. Mm. His mother, Frances, was worried sick. She wrote frantically to the school, begging for answers about her son's whereabouts. The school superintendent, Millard Davidson, claimed that George had run away again and no one knew anything about where he could be. Francis wrote back to the superintendent and informed him that she uh, that she was going to make the 350-mile journey so that she could search for her son. But before she could make the journey, around January 23rd, 1941, News reached Francis that her son had been found dead in Mariana. In, in Mariana. So he never made it out of the town. Mm-hmm. Which is so weird because... So the timeline for this is... He went... Like, he went missing as early as, like, September of 1940. These letters that were exchanged from the superintendent were, like... December, January ish. Mm-hmm. And then Francis is like, well, I'm going to go and, and I'm going to come down there and I'm going to help. I'm going to look for my son. And then before she can make the plans to, uh, um, to go down there, word gets back to her that her son was found dead. Right. Francis would be making the journey to the school after all, but it would be to see where her son was buried. 
According to the school, George's remains were found under a house in town. I assume it must have been a crawl space under a porch or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was possible that he had been there for some time, seeing as how the letter saying that he had escaped was dated January 1st, 1941, that we had actually been missing since September of 1940. Um, And then he was not found until nearly the end of January, 1941. And then of course, it's like, these are the probably the coldest months in, in that part of the state. So maybe any kind of like decomposition, any kind of like smells that would alert people that there was maybe a body, you know, under the house um that that uh was probably delit like the that was probably slowed down by the cold so that would explain why maybe it took so long for anyone to find him possibly but then again were they looking that hard that's true too i mean also who thinks that they're gonna like look under every house in town right Um, They also identified his body by his dental records, markings on his clothes, and tufts of hair, which, again, might suggest some state of decomposition. Mm -hmm. Uh, When the family arrived, they were shown to a fresh grave, simple mound of dirt, no headstone or official marker, though they were told that one would eventually be erected. uh, That turned out to be a lie. Now, George had been buried before his family could even pay their respects. And they had to take the word of the school that the pitiful grave was really where their son rested. The family met with another boy at the school who allegedly escaped with George. Um, And now this was, but when they met with this other boy, it was in the presence of the superintendent. So uh, you can imagine... uh, one of the kids at the school uh, could not exactly speak freely mm-hmm, about their experience right. in the presence of the superintendent. Um, and I would not be surprised if maybe there was a little coercion there, whether that was, hey, you say what we want you to say and there'll be rewards or <laughs> you say what we want you to say or there will be a punishment. Exactly. So it could go either way. The boy said that the two of them had been spotted after escaping and George chose to run into an open field. When George ran, the men pursuing him shot at him. And that was the last corroborated sighting of the boy until his remains were found. The official report said that George died from exposure, but his family couldn't help wondering if he had actually been gunned down and the truth obscured by a hasty burial Mm -hmm, which i am leaning towards Mm -hmm. especially since like even the kid who allegedly tried to escape with him said that people were shooting at him i could totally see uh you know if he had been wounded by a bullet and he was scared and injured and so he found like the first kind of cover that he could find and that maybe he eventually bled out and that's why he was found under a house mm-hmm. that that time that sort of those events make sense to me 
Years later, a man who had been in the school with George named James Young recalled that George had been determined to get away because of a severe beating he had received from a guard. George is remembered to have said, ain't one of you gonna lay another hand on me. I'm never going back to that White House. Hmm. The loss of George was too much for his mother to handle. How could she have closure when she couldn't even be sure that her boy was dead? For decades after the horrible incident, Frances waited on her stoop, listening for the whistle of her son to cut through the darkness. Her daughter, Ovel, who was 12 years old when her big brother disappeared, said that she lost two people that day, her brother and her mother. Her mother was never the same and suffered a mental breakdown because of the trauma of losing her child. Ovel never forgot her big brother and always hoped to get answers someday. She grew up and became one of the first female officers in the Lakeland, Florida Police Department Hmm. and was, in fact, one of the first female officers in the entire state and served for two decades in, in the community near where she grew up. When Ovel de- uh, while Ovel dedicated her life to public service, her heart still remained heavy. But one day she hoped to get some closure on the death that upset her life. And that's so awesome that like Ovel was able to achieve so much for a woman in that time. Oh, yeah. But it's heartbreaking that she achieved it because of these tragic events that happened in her life Mm -hmm. now while george's life ended tragically while staying at the school others endured painful physical and psychological wounds that they carried with them far beyond their days uh, within the school's walls the 1950s and 60s saw some of the worst abuse of these children and the survivors became known later as the White House Boys. A group of five men, Dick Cullen, uh, Robert Straley, Michael O. McCarthy, Bill Haynes, and Roger Kaiser, all shared their stories of their time at the school. They had been sent there decades ago, but they still could recall every sickening detail as if it had happened recently. Dick Cullen uh as an adult was still haunted by memories from the school including seeing a boy's body tumbling in an an industrial dryer michael o mccarthy was once beaten so badly that he had to be treated at the infirmary for his wounds bill haynes who was uh, who had been sent to the school after allegedly stealing a bicycle initially thought the school might be a good place for him when he saw the beautiful campus but his tune changed quick after he got his first beating robert straley for years after his time at the school had to deal with acute depression and blackouts that came out of nowhere Mm. he would he would emerge from these blackouts sweaty and angry with his fist balled up He felt like he had a demon inside of him fighting to break out. Robert's story is one that could have happened to any latchkey kid of the the era. He had a strict mother and an absent father and often ran off to get away from his mother's strictness. 
When he was caught, he would always be brought home. But at 13 years old, when he was brought in for joyriding with some friends who had taken a relative's car, his mother rejected him and said, I don't care what you do with him, but he's not coming back here. I don't want him. That's awful. It's it's so heartbreaking to hear that from a mother. Mm-hmm. Like you, you think, you know, um, moms have kind of a special place because, you know, they are the, the first ones to see their children. You know, they carry them around for nine months. They're literally a part of them. Right. And to be like, I just don't want you anymore mm-hmm. is, is one of the most heartbreaking things you can imagine. Yeah. At the school, Robert was robbed of his dignity and his innocence. A terrible memory that would trigger nightmares into his later years. Official reports even corroborated that punishment at the school was over the top and draconian. A leather strap fastened to a wooden handle was a weapon of choice when it came to beatings. Many of these survivors recall a one-armed man doling out the lashings, some re- uh, some reaching reportedly 100 or more. So we're taught, like, you think about how many, um, you know, how many individual lashings a, a human body can even handle. Oh, right. A hundred or more is just pushing the limit of what a human can withstand. Yes. Now, when an investigation would happen, public outcry would inspire action. But even when superintendents got fired, the beatings still continued. When it came to those who were wronged by the system, another voice can be added to this chorus of misery. Richard Varna, uh, Varnado had two brothers that were sent to the school. One of them, Thomas Varnado, was sent there in 1934 on a trumped-up charge of trespassing. He was he was at the school for barely a month before word was sent to his family that he had allegedly died of pneumonia. But the family doubted the claim. Thomas was not known to be a sickly child, and the worst part was that before the family could could arrive and collect their loved one's remains, the school buried his body on the campus. So this is one thing where like the the school tried to make the claim like, oh, well, when he got here, he was already like kind of sickly. Um, so, you know, it's really not a surprise that he died of pneumonia a month after arriving. Uh, and his family was like, um, excuse me. No, that is not the case. Uh, it seemed like he was a perfectly healthy young boy at the time when he was taken in and for trespassing like and also like they can't really use that excuse it's not like it's 1905 anymore there's better medicine there's better heating there's so many advances have been made that a healthy child should if they do contract pneumonia should not succumb to it Mm -hmm. and And also if he'd gotten sick they should have brought him to like an actual hospital maybe rather than just like the infirmary on the campus. And this is another situation where they were pretty quick to bury the body. Yeah. That's a thing that happens a lot. And of course, back then, 
you didn't have the kind of the level of like forensics that are available to us today. So, and, and they weren't about to go digging up the body and, and showing you like, oh yeah, see like this, this proves it. Um, and I think there was also a certain reverence of like, once a body is in a grave, they don't really want to disturb it. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, a lot of these families were forced to swallow this very bitter pill that not only were their loved ones gone, but they were going to stay at that school forever. Right. Which is so hard because you want uh, you want your family members to be, you know, accessible. So, you know, you could... Like you could lay flowers on their grave and whatnot, but that's not easy to do when they're maybe hundreds of miles away from home. And, and it doesn't sound like there are nice headstones. It's just a. Uh... And that's the thing too. Like I'm guessing that if they ever even marked the graves, it was maybe just like a wooden cross or mm-hmm. something. That maybe in... with a name on it. Yeah, that's a big maybe because. Some of these families were promised that like, oh yeah, there'll be a permanent uh, grave marker. And then, you know, it was a lie that because, you know, here when we fast forward to present times, when they're trying to locate all of these bodies, they have to use ground penetrating radar to find out where the graves even are. Wow. And uh, it's it's just ridiculous that they that there was such little care given to the families too, mm-hmm. uh, that they weren't given uh, even a, a proper place where they could mourn. So even in his twilight years, Thomas's brother, Richard, felt the hole in his heart left by this loss. At 84 years old, he joined the growing crowd of people looking for answers in the old school cemetery. Suspicion and violence didn't just extend to the staff at the school. Sometimes the boys turned on each other, and when brutality was shown to them, the cycle of abuse was likely to continue. In 1936, a 14-year-old Robert uh, Stevens, originally accounted for as Sinus, which is a very weird misspelling, um, was sentenced to two years for breaking and entering. Ten months later, on July 15th, 1937, Robert was found dead. On on the death certificate, the space left for uh, autopsy information was left blank, which shows that it's likely that they didn't bother with one. Mm -hmm. In school records, it was documented that he had been stabbed to death by a boy named Leroy Taylor, and the cause of death had been a knife wound following hemorrhage. The Jackson County Clerk's Office had documentation that Taylor was indicted on first-degree murder charges and later pled guilty to second-degree murder. Now, Robert was buried on the campus, but where exactly was anyone's guess? Another boy who met a similar fate was Earl Wilson, a 12-year-old boy who was sent to the school in 1944. He was subjected to sweat lodge-like conditions where he was confined in a single-room cottage with eight to nine other boys for days on end. And when they talked about the the size of this cottage, 
they were they said that you could if you were to like spread your arms out you could almost touch each side of the cottage so imagine eight to nine boys of various young ages crammed in a like i don't know like maybe 10 by 10 room probably yep yeah and the conditions were just absolutely deplorable yeah the cottage was tiny brutally hot and unfit for living conditions with only a bucket for water and a bucket for a toilet and a single light bulb that never turned off it's it's it sounds like torture yeah it really does like yeah try try sleeping when there's a light on 24 hours a day Mm -hmm. in there and so here you are deprived of sleep deprived of decent living conditions like you were probably going crazy in there yeah for sure a jury convicted four of the boys for beating for beating earl to death even though witnesses and the physician's testimonies conflicted. But a friend of Earl's insisted that the fatal beating was actually from from a punishment administered by guards. The school's doctor, Dr. Charles Whitaker, said the cause of death was blunt force trauma, but others claimed that he had been choked to death. Regardless of the facts, the four boys were all found guilty and at the time could have faced the death penalty. Like, remember, we're still in a time period where I, I believe the youngest child to be, you know, put on death row, death row and executed was like 12 years old. Uh, there, I think he might've been younger. There's a f- very famous photo. I'm blanking on his name, um, but there's a young black boy that was electrocuted. Yep. Okay, so I, I did a quick Google search, George Stinney. Uh, George Stinney Jr. was uh, convicted and sentenced to death and executed by the electric chair in 1944. So this is the time mm-hmm. period. Yeah. Uh, oh, and he was 14. 14. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's just it's horrifying. Mm-hmm. It's like a little child. Right. And he looks so tiny. Yes, that's why I thought he was younger because he did, he appears younger. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll get to that another day. Right. So yeah, these these four boys, they could have faced the death penalty, um, but were instead issued life sentences. Now, Earl Wilson's death, uh, though, did draw unwanted attention to the school. And thanks to the outcry, Sweat boxes were discontinued as a form of punishment after the ordeal. So a small victory. It's horrible that a child had to die. Um, but at least this one method of torture was done away with. Right. And unfortunately, it does take, you know, after, I mean, hopefully just one person. I mean, it shouldn't take any people. But um, it usually does take the death of one or multiple people for change to happen. Yep. And it's it's a horrible thing to come to terms with. But yeah, unfortunately, that's what happens a lot of the time. Now, over the school's 111 year history, it is astounding to know 
that no one was ever charged criminally for the abuse, sexual or otherwise, carried out behind the walls of the school. A man named Freddie Williams came forward to tell his story of being sent to the school in 1959 when, as a 13-year-old, he was caught stealing food and running away from an abusive home. Like, how sad is that? Like, you were trying to get food because you were starving and you were trying to escape, a, like, a broken home. Yeah, and, like, you are in a awful situation and you think you found a way out, but it just leads you to an, even an worse. E- equal or worse yeah. situation. He claimed that the one-time superintendent of the school, Lennox Williams, had raped him. Freddie recalled being taken to the White House and forced down onto a cot. He was beaten with a leather strap by a man named Maurice Crockett and then molested by the superintendent after the beating. No one answered for these horrible acts But in an investigation in 1962 by the Florida Legislative Investigation Committee saw to it that three men were removed from their posts. Uh, A priest, a psychologist, and a cottage father for performing acts of homosexuality with the inmates. It seemed to be a pattern when it came to the Dozier School. Whenever a new injustice was brought to light, there would be a shuffling of staff or a name change. The school became uh, the Florida School for Boys in 1957 and then changed to the Arthur G. Dozier School for Boys in 1967. So here it's almost like, oh yeah, every 10 years, let's just give the school a, a PR chain, like well, name Yeah, change. I mean, once it get once the name gets the negative reputation, mm-hmm. you got to change it because then people that haven't heard of this new name Mm-hmm. I think, oh, this is a great place to send my kid. Yeah. Now, staff and superintendents uh, came and went, but the fact remained that none of those who inflicted harm on these boys, regardless to whether they were black or white, guilty of a crime or not, had to answer for their brutality. The school was allowed to operate into the 2000s, but when the aging facility failed a state inspection in 2009, then Governor Charlie Crist ordered a full investigation thanks to the persistent efforts of the White House boys who bravely shared their darkest memories with the world. I cannot believe that this, when you said 2000s, I was expecting this to be, I mean, when you said 67, I was already like, whoa, it went that long. But the fact Mm -hmm. that it was around until the 2000s. Yep. And, And kids... The kids were still dying at that facility up until the 70s. That was the last recorded death at the school. So that that is 70 years of like unanswered questions on just the deaths, not even talking about the abuse and mistreatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking at images of it right now and I'm just blown away. Um, so the governor had ordered a full investigation and it was thanks to the persistent efforts of the White House boys who bravely shared their darkest memories with the world. 
The school was shut down finally in 2011, ending a cycle of abuse that spanned more than a century. It may be true that some did not have the same experience as the White House boys and many others. Some were quick to share their positive experiences with the school, but it cannot be denied that far too many young people were allowed to slip through the cracks and were looked down as throwaways. No child is a throwaway child, and all of these kids' lives mattered. Now that the school is closed, though, this is only half of the story, which is why next episode we will be devoting that to what happened next. The boys of Dozier School, buried on Boot Hill, would not remain there forever. So you'll have to tune in next time for part two of The Lost Boys of Dozier School. Wow. This is so, yeah, that and that is a, you know, there, I probably could have written pages and pages more. Uh, you know, I tried to kind of pick out the biggest stories because um, there are lots of little tidbits of, of more people who um, either died or, or had terrible experiences at the school. Um, it's really, uh, it, it's a, a mountain of evidence uh, against this this institution and thank goodness it's closed um and i think you'll find it really interesting what happens next and uh what the reaction was to everything it's it um it doesn't seem like it could happen in the 21st century but uh it did and you'll you'll just be shocked at the the things that happen next. I cannot even imagine what happened next. I'm going to have to stop myself from Googling. Um, <laughs> Cause when you mentioned the two thousands, like it really, I always like to look up, you know, images when you're telling stories, but I hadn't looked up anything until you mentioned two thousands. Cause that was like, I mean, everything in this was shocking. The treatment, mm -hmm. the number of kids, um, the adults, the disgusting acts they did, everything was shocking. But the most shocking thing to me was, again, that it went on into the 21st century. Um, and as you mentioned, you could write pages and pages of stories because when I just did a quick Google search, it's just like the list of references are just endless. And like the number of books that are on this school mm -hmm. Um yeah, so I'm curious to hear what happened after the school closed. It doesn't sound like it was anything good. <laughs> um, so yes, listeners, if you want to hear the second half of this, please tune in next week for part two of the Dozier School for Boys. Um, great, great research. Um, um in large part thanks to Aaron yeah Aaron Kimmerell Aaron Kimmerell um whew, all right well that's heavy yeah. but it's super important yes. to tell these stories so that we don't forget we don't want to repeat these things and also I think it is something that we do need to keep in mind going forward there is still the prison industrial complex mm -hmm. that persists to this day um, you know, I think it's 
it's very easy to write off the that you know the people that get sent to these institutions uh it, to a certain extent i think the narrative is that they get what they deserve um but we also need to remember that these are human beings and when you treat human beings uh without uh, any kind of regard for their safety or respect or their well-being or their mental health um that you are not making them productive members of society because they will eventually get out of there someday and instead you're just going to put a you know a broken person out into the world where you're just setting them up for failure exactly uh, rather than than trying to make them better people better members of society that won't reoffend. So mm -hmm. we can you... uh, do a whole episode on just that. I'm sure. I was going to say we can talk all, we can do a season on the reform <laughs> system in the, in the United States. Um, but yes, great job. Thank you for telling that tale. Um, uh, listeners again, tune in next week for part two. If you want to see, I'm going to put up a few different photos on our Instagram and Facebook just because there are, because it went on for so long, there's different stages of the mm -hmm. school. So I kind of want to share the different stages and different images. Um, and you can find those images on Instagram or Facebook at Dark and Devious Podcast. Um, and if you want to give us a rating, we always appreciate that. So please do if you are enjoying us. And until next time. Bye. Bye.